We are in Mark chapter 3. We're going to look at the first six verses. You'll find it on page 838 in your pew Bible. I would encourage all of you to open up God's Word, uh, whether it's your copy, um, the copy that's in the pew there, that we might see, that we might hear, that it, that it would sink in uh, well, again, as we take advantage of what we have. As we think about this passage, I was reminded in, in, in my preparation and, and very thoughtful about uh, the value, the necessity of the local church. The local church, like Millbrook Presbyterian Church, an assembly gathered in one place. Um, and throughout church history, uh, the local church, its value, its necessity, has, has always been under attack. I'd like to say that today is, is unique, but it's, it's not. The, the local church, the particular church, has, has regularly come under attack. Now, what we see today, particularly in our very individualistic day-to-day, where it's more stressed about an individual before God, which is, is true, that we confess, I confess with my mouth that Jesus is Lord, I believe in my heart that God raised Him from the dead, then I am saved. But we need to recognize that God, when He saves us, that He blesses us with a community. He blesses us with the assembly. He richly provides for us by having a particular church family. Now, what I see, and one of the, the, the things that grieves me a lot, is that churches have really become a consumer good. Churches have become something that people shop for. We shop for churches. Uh, we, we, we covet and we look for upgrades like, like we have last year's iPhone. We need this year's church. We look down the road to see if there's if something new, something different, something, something that's going to amaze, dazzle. Or as we quoted one Sunday morning, a pastor that said, we find the church that's full of sparklers. We criticize, we critique, we find fault. And churches, <laughs> churches appear, by the way, on Yelp. Churches appear on Yelp right next to restaurants, right next to stores and plumbers. It's, it's something that people shop for. And they're not always happy with the product that they, they purchased. I, I think about a letter that a, a church member wrote one Sunday. Uh, he wrote actually one week to the editor of a newspaper talking about uh, something he came to understand at church. He said, I have been gone to my church for 30 years now. In that time, I've heard something like 3,000 sermons. But for the life of me, I can't remember a single one of them. So I think I'm wasting my time, and, and the pastor, uh, I think he's wasting his time too. And that kind of sat out there, just that, that, that statement just kind of sat out there for a bit until somebody replied back in the editorial section of the newspaper. And the responder wrote this, you know, I've been married for some 30 years now. And in that time, my wife has cooked some 32,000 meals. But for the life of me, I cannot recall the entire menu of a single one of those meals. But I do know this. They've all nourished me. They've given me strength, the strength I need to live this day and do my work. If my wife had not given me those meals, I would be physically dead today. Likewise, to not go to church for nourishment these 30 years, you too would be spiritually it's that idea that, that, that we 
have to shop for the church that is, is going, to, going to give me what I want in the way I want it, when I want it, and nothing more. Now, this, this is a, a, a portion of the text that we're looking at today, and it comes out of, out of the, the, the first couple of words here. And I believe as we're reading this passage, it would be very easy to skip over this, but what was remarkable was the number of, of pastors, and the number of, of commentators on this text that paid careful attention to what Mark says and what Luke and the parallel passage say with these very first words. Look at it with me. Mark chapter 3, verse 1, and we'll read through verse 6. Again, Jesus entered the synagogue. That's where it begins. Jesus is in the house of God. So let's read. Again, he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. They watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath, and that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with a withered hand, Come here. And he said to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm? Is it lawful on the Sabbath to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around them with anger. And he was grieved at the hardness of their hearts. And he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out. And the hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him on how to destroy him. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we might discuss it, that we might look at it, that we might be changed by it here in the house of God. Lord, lead us in this time, we pray, through your word, that neither withers nor fades, that it would take root in our hearts. For your glory and for our good in Jesus' name. Amen. Jesus was in the house of the Lord. But think about what was going on while Jesus was there. The one thing that's inescapable as Jesus stood in the midst of all those who were there was Jesus was watched. All eyes were on Jesus. Important theological point there, all eyes are on Jesus. As we read God's Word from cover to cover, if we start in Genesis and read slap on back to the maps, as we read God's Word, our eyes need to be on Jesus. But we need to be watching, not for the reason that the Pharisees were watching Jesus in the synagogue. We ought to be keeping our eyes upon Jesus, fixing our eyes upon Him, for He is the sum and substance of this message. From creation right through to the idea of eternal paradise, that our praise, our praise is to the Lord God Almighty who has saved us through Jesus Christ. But here in this moment, in the house of God, it says that Jesus was watched. They watched Jesus, verse 2, to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath. What a thing to be doing. They were watching to see if Jesus would incriminate himself. Now, the word there, it says they watched Jesus. This is the English Standard Translation. Uh, There are other translations in uh, that, that bring it out. But literally, what they're talking about, the, the, the verb there is in its imperfect tense. It means they continued to watch. They continued and continued and continued to watch. It was unfinished action. They were watching and they continued to watch. There was never a point at which the Pharisees would look and and finally see what they were supposed to see. They were continuing to look for fault. That was their mission. It was a wicked stakeout is what they were doing. Following Jesus. 
I've thought about this when we talk about politicians and actors and people who are in the public spotlight. I think about the vice president years and years ago who, who got into all kind of trouble because he was at a spelling bee and wanted to put an E in potato, right? And one of the things that I encourage people to do in the midst of that was to say, you know, you need to praise God that you don't have a microphone in your face 24 hours a day because, oh my goodness, would people have some ammunition against me if, if they picked up and recorded some of the dumb things that I've said. These Pharisees were, were hawking over Jesus like buzzards, circling around, looking, looking for, for some sign of death, hoping that Jesus would incriminate himself. So we begin with this text and thinking about that as Jesus was being watched in such a way, do we have any reasonable expectation that we too will not be watched in that way? Do we have any reasonable expectation that we can just live our lives and be left alone? That's an unrealistic expectation. And unrealistic expectations lead to frustration and frustration to giving up. But we need to go into it recognizing that when you proclaim that the Lord Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior, you become a marked man and a marked woman. And a watching world is going to be watching. And you know what? They are going to in many times rejoice in your downfall. They're going to rejoice when you mess up have this discussion all the time, particularly in my called profession as a pastor, especially when you see pastors, preachers, public religious figures who fall in really spectacular ways, public sin issues. And, and I, I warn young pastors about this, and, and I daily stay warned in this, is recognizing that you strike the shepherd and the sheep scatter. That those who, who stand before God's people and say, thus saith the Lord, become particularly susceptible. And I would say that the demonic forces, the, the forces, of the, the prince of the power of this world, that would just looking to, to find those opportunities to knock down those who are in public view. It doesn't surprise me. The number of, of pastors that have been caught, that have been caught doing the things they ought not do. Jesus is not caught because He is always doing, He is always about His Father's business, but we need to understand that we are watched. And, and we're watched in good ways too. Parents, you're being watched by your children. You're being watched by those around you. Uh, neighbors are watching. They see you get up and go to church on Sunday morning, and they see you come home, and they may hear when you're yelling at your spouse or your kids that you, they're going to you know, see you when you cut somebody off in traffic. They're going to see all the, the aspects of your life are going to be watching and noting those moments of hypocrisy. Now, again, realistic versus unrealistic expectations. It is not a realistic expectation that we would live faultless lives as Jesus did. We are going to make mistakes and we are going to sin. But we need to be aware of that. And as we sin in front of others, that they see it. Then, then they need to know that, that not only do we know how to sin, but we know how to repent. We know how to seek forgiveness. We know how to pursue righteousness in changing those aspects of our lives by the power of the Spirit. Jesus was watched, and we shall be too. Our actions will be watched. We must maintain a holy diligence over our conduct and understand that there are not going to be moments where where people are not watching. One of the great theme songs of, of uh, television shows, in my opinion, uh, was the theme song to Cheers. 
Remember that one? What's the refrain? Sometimes you want to go where? Everybody knows your name, right? You walk in and they say, Norm! Sometimes you want to go where everybody knows your name, but we, we do understand the reality of our sinful nature is that sometimes you want to go where nobody knows your name. Sometimes you want to be where, where folks won't find you out. When, when we are sitting there and indulging our sinful inclinations, we, we don't want to be seen, but you, you are. You're watched. And as you are watched, you need to be faithful. We must be faithful as our Savior is faithful. And as I said, even avoiding the appearance of evil. Socrates made a statement. He, he, he has a very simple statement, and, and all type of, of speculation and discussion about what it means has, has come to pass since he made it. But he said this, he said, The unexamined life is not worth living. The unexamined life is not worth living. And that's recognizing that if there's something about your life, then people are going to be watching. And if there's nothing worth watching in your life, then it's not worth living. That, that we have something about our lives, the life that we live in the flesh, we live by faith in the Son of God who loved us and gave himself for us. That's the testimony of Paul. That's our testimony as well. The life that I live is not my own. It's Christ's. So it's good for Christians to keep this on our mind. Wherever we go, whatever we do, let's remember this. Like our Master, we are watched. And what's really wonderful about this is our Savior, who was watched himself, he knows how to sympathize with us. We have a high priest who understands us. We, we have one who is with us always, even to the end, and supplies grace to us to walk in a fashion worthy of his calling. So we need to begin by this text that in the assembly, Jesus is watched, but then what happens? Jesus, as he enters the assembly, we need to understand that Jesus was a worshiper. Jesus was watched, but he was also a worshiper. It says, verse 1, again he entered the synagogue. Luke picks up in this, Luke chapter 4, verse 16. He says, on the Sabbath day he went to the synagogue, as was his custom. Jesus was a church-going man. Even with problems in the church. Now you think about the problems in the day of Jesus and the problems in the days to come. Even the churches that were then being established by the apostles after the life of Jesus. We think about the, the churches to which letters were written, right? We think about the, uh, the Corinthian congregation. All kind of problems there. Uh, the, the open sin, the party spirit that was there. Or the Roman church uh, had had great weakness, in it, even in the midst of some strong brethren there. The Galatian church, the Judaizers, who were, were teaching a false gospel, that is, that, that you had to be circumcised and become a Jew before you could become a Christian. And Paul condemned that, but he did not disestablish that church. He did not say this church needs to close its doors. It needed to be refined, corrected, and its direction uh, put on a more Christward fashion. The Philippian church... In Philippians 1, Paul writes this, he says, Some indeed preach Christ from envy, some preach from rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter will do it from love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition. What then? He says he rejoices only that in every way, whether in pretense or truth, Christ is proclaimed. In that I rejoice. There were problems in the church, but never do you see an admonition say, You know what? You just need to give up on the church. You just need to stop going. In all of this, Hebrews 10.25 says, And let us consider how to stir one another up in love and good deeds, not neglecting meeting together as the habit of some, 
but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near, the day of Christ Jesus, seeing it draw near, we ought to be about assembling. It ought to be said of us, on the Sabbath day we entered the house of God as was our custom. But we do live in a a day of great individualism, just saying it's just me and God. So if it's just me and God, I can meet God anywhere. I can meet God, I'll probably step on everybody's toes somewhere. I can meet God on the golf course. I can meet Him in the fishing boat. I can meet Him in the shopping mall. I can meet Him in my bed. Jesus is with you in those places. Yes, amen. But as we talked about last week, are you experiencing the fullness of what God has for you as you simply indulge the the worldly affections that you have rather than fully embracing the wonder that God has for you in His assembly. You think about Jesus. Uh, we're going to get to this in, a, in a, uh, a few chapters, but in Mark chapter 12. Mark chapter 12, you think about even in the midst of corruption in the church, Jesus did not discourage the faithful observance of the ordinances of the church. In Mark chapter 12... We see Jesus standing there with his disciples. They were right across from where they had these trumpet-shaped containers where people would come and they'd place their offering. And they watched. Many were coming in there and they were making great show of pulling out their wallets, their their money bags, and pouring great sums of money and, and walking out. Arrogance. Great show. Great self aggrandizement Then you see the widow coming in there And she digs deep, and she's only able to pull out two little pennies. The widow's mite, we call it. And she placed it in the vase. And Jesus used that as a teaching moment for the disciples around. See, you see what she did? She gave sacrificially. She gave well. But what didn't he do there? He did not run across that woman and say, Do you know how how, how messed up this church is? Don't put your money in here. You, You keep that. You give it somewhere else. She was being faithful even when the church had its problems. And Jesus commended her for her faithfulness, even in the midst of problems. It was a consistent practice of our Savior to be in the synagogue on the Sabbath. Jesus did not forsake the assembling together. It must be precious to us, brothers and sisters, because it was precious to Jesus. Simply put, if you love the Lord, then you need to love His bride. You need to love the church. Augustine said something similar, a little coarser, a little, little more um, uh, provocative. When he's speaking about the corruption that he found in the church in his day, he says, yes, you may find the church to be a prostitute, but she is your mother. We're to love her. And we need to be faithful about attention to worship. Jesus, as he's going into the synagogue, uh, he, he did so regularly, and he was about the practice of what was going on, the preaching of the word, uh, giving, sacrifice, uh, all the, the faithful work of ministry. I, I knew a couple once, and, and they very much viewed the church as a commodity that not only could they buy, but over which they could wield great influence. They, they were a couple of great means, they, they had lots of money. And they became very upset with the current pastor. I will say, just for sake of pride, the pastor's name was not Bowman. They were very upset with this particular pastor. And this couple who regularly gave very substantially to the church 
began, because they were not happy with the product that they were receiving, uh, began to write and place checks for $1 in the offering plate every Sunday. Believing that they could manipulate this good through leaving bad reviews in the forms of unfaithful giving. We need to be faithful about our ministry, our work together. As we come together, the church is is such a precious gift. We we see it throughout God's Word, the the need for accountability, the need for us to take care of each other. Talking about maintaining roles of the sick and of widows, we find all of this in God's Word, that we in the household of God would be accountable to one another, and this would not be a country club, this would not be a social organization by which we buy and sell memberships, this would not be a commodity that's sold on the internet, but it would be the house of God in which we rejoice and cherish. And what takes place here, the case in point that we deal with is the doing of good and not harm, saving life and not killing in the household of God. And so what does Jesus do here in the house? He makes things whole. He makes things whole. Keep in mind, now Jesus was not here on a medical mission. Jesus did not come to establish a hospital. He came to establish a church against which the gates of hell couldn't prevail. But this man with a withered hand comes into their midst. Now, withered hand, it literally means wasted away, like a plant. I deployed several years ago, uh, and as I was gone for several months, when I came back, there had been a plant in my office, and the office door had been closed, quite obviously, for the whole duration of my time. And when I came, what was left in that pot that was a big, beautiful plant before no longer resembled what I left, it had withered and died. And this man's hand, the, the, the way that it's described, it, it couldn't be used anymore. It no longer resembled what it, what it was. Withered, shrunk, broken. And Jesus is moved with compassion. And so what did he do? He did this man good. What did he do? He did it publicly, right there in the midst. He said, verse 3, he said, Egiro, that is, rise, stand, and come here. Rise up in the midst of the assembly. Egiro, stand up and come. What he did, he didn't do in private. He did good before others to make the point. Now, he knew the grumblings that were going on. Just like he knew, remember when the paralytic boy was lowered down into the house? He knew the grumblings in the hearts of those who were were watching when he said, your sins are forgiven. They they grumbled and he said, well, which is easier to say your sins are forgiven or rise and walk? We know that story. And he, he knew the heart, plus, plus his experience. We looked at it last week. The disciples, they were being quizzed about why does Jesus encourage y'all to, to not keep the Sabbath like you should? And even before... Why don't y'all fast like John the Baptist or the, or the Pharisees? The disciples and Jesus knew what was going on. And Jesus knew that there were in his midst those who grumbled. And he didn't let that moment pass by. By word and by demonstration, he told the man, stand up, come forward. And he did good for all to see. But in doing so, he did ask a poignant question. Think about the the teaching value of great questions. The teaching value of great questions. If I tell you something, if I tell you something, you might hear it, you might listen, but if I ask you and elicit the answer from you, then, then you have greater ownership of that. For you've had to wrestle with it and have had to at least proclaim that, that you believe this to be true. And Jesus did this 
over and over again. You think about the Good Samaritan, the parable, and finally, at the end of the story, he asked the man, he says, which of these people was the neighbor to draw out of him the answer? And here Jesus says, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or, or to do harm, to save life or to kill? He was drawing direct contrast. And he was asking the Pharisees and their students and the scribes that were with them. This was not simply one person watching, but a group who were there in the, in the church, in the synagogue, watching Jesus. And his own actions versus the thoughts and the inaction of the Pharisee and his words try to draw an answer from them. He says, which is right? Doing harm? That is, ignoring the sick? Not doing good when it's in your power to help? How about that? Is it okay to do harm on the Sabbath? That's an easy question. Is it okay to do bad things on the Sabbath? No. No, it's never okay to do bad things, particularly not in the house of God, not on the Sabbath. But the text tells us that Jesus, as he was deafened by the silence, that Jesus got angry and he was grieved. Orge, that's, that's the, uh, the word for anger there. It means indignation. It's, it's used to describe God's wrath. It's a reaction against the, the wicked that he saw. And so Lepeo, that means he was disturbed, distressed in his heart. We see Jesus filled with indignation and with inward sorrow. We see in Jesus righteous wrath and we see compassionate tears. All in that moment. And what was the focus of that? Look at the text right there. He says, as he looked around them with anger, grieved at the hardness of their heart. It would be one thing to say that Jesus was angry at these men. But Jesus also wept. It doesn't mention tears in his eyes, but it mentions the grieving of his heart. This is the Lion of Judah right there in the assembly, calling out those who stood by and did no good, those who criticized but didn't help. Now, their habit, those who were watching and listening, their habit would have been to do this. They would have pulled out the books, the scrolls, and they would have started looking through them. And started. they'd used it as a wonderful opportunity for debate. What would the rabbis have said about these matters? What is our precedent on how to act at this moment? That's what they thought religion was all about talking like that, splitting hairs in the name of God. Now, they can measure the, the, the hems and the borders of their garment right down to the fraction of a millimeter. But Jesus presses the matter. How about cutting through all of that? Will you do good to this man? Now, they didn't have it within their power to heal, but, but they certainly could have looked to him and said, what needs has this man, this man with a withered hand? Today, we, in a day of prosthetics, in the day of accommodation in so many ways, a withered hand in that day would have been a sentence for his life that he would have permanently been reliant on public support, on the support of others. He would not have been able to labor and work as men did, working in the field, a building, doing any type of manual labor because of this withered hand. And Jesus asked the question, he asked the question, will you do good? They didn't need a PhD to answer this question. And so Jesus waits. He watches. It's a long silence. A lot of men there, a lot of Pharisees. No one broke the ranks. 
no one spoke up and said, yes, what can I do? Can I do good? Jesus, show me something I can do and I will do it. And so like a protective father, like a loving parent, that moment disturbed Jesus. He was angry and he was grieved. Charles Haddon Spurgeon, that great Baptist pastor in the Metropolitan uh, Tabernacle Church of London, as I've said many times, every Presbyterian's favorite Baptist. He he wrote this. He says, uh, there's something very admirable in our Savior, even when we see him in this unusual condition. Even when he grows angry with men, he is angry with them because they won't let him bless them. You see him asking that question, right? And all they need to say is, Lord Jesus, what shall we do? As, as was asked him later, where shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Lord Jesus, lead and we will follow. That's all they had to do. But they won't let him bless them. They persevere in opposing him for reasons which they can't themselves support. And they don't even dare to own those reasons. If I had been one of those disciples who was within the synagogue, I think that I would have burned with indignation to see them all just sitting there refusing to forego their hate, unable to say a word in defense of it. Do you see their hatred for Jesus? Already the Pharisees, so anxious to find reason to condemn Jesus, would not do good to a man in their midst. So distracted were they by their own selfish motives that they did not see the need of another. And, and then Jesus brings up this. He says, all right, do good or harm. That's okay, we're good. But then he goes on to say, save life or kill? Really, there's going to be murder in, in the synagogue? Is that what we're talking about, Jesus? Well, right there, verse 6, it says, the Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against Jesus on how to destroy him. And so we see Jesus' enemies plotting wickedness right there, walking out the door. They gather together and they said, how can we get rid of this man? Luke, Luke chapter 6, the parallel account uh, to this, as Luke describes it. Remember, Dr. Luke, was, uh, he was a stickler for putting in all the little details. Mark goes from account to account pretty quickly. Luke pulls in a lot of details. It says, but they, speaking of the Pharisees, were filled with fury, and they discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. Filled with fury, literally out of their minds with anger at Jesus. They worked themselves up into a frenzy over Jesus healing on the Sabbath. But they had no problem with premeditated murder and conspiracy on that day. And they start pulling in the most unlikely of co-conspirators. They pull in the Herodians. Herodians, that's a a title we think about even as as Rick read this morning. We read about all the ites uh, in the accounts of of Joshua fighting. and, and, And they began to kind of blur together. Remember the Herodians there were those who associated with the ruling family of Herod. It was a political group. And it went back, harkened back to Herod the Great. Remember his fame? Snatching the babies from the hands of Jewish mothers and slaughtering them, reminiscent of Pharaoh doing the same. We think about Herod Antipas, the one who killed John the Baptist, Herod Agrippa I, who killed James. These, these Herods and the Herodians loved the status quo. They enjoyed having this peace with Rome. They didn't share the theology of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, but they, they shared a common objective. This fellow is a troublemaker. And so the Pharisees and Sadducees did not conspire for the sake of theology. They conspired for the sake of the status quo, that their lives, that their little roost would be protected. They saw Jesus as a threat to what they wanted. I have to say, as I said at the beginning, that that nothing's different today 
It's just it's packaged differently. And, and we can transmit it around the world a whole lot faster. But just as, as the Pharisees saw Jesus as a threat to what they wanted, we need to understand that our own sin is a means by which we find Jesus as a threat to what we want. And uh, we don't conspire for his death, but we need to address the fact that when we embrace our own sin, what we're doing is we are pushing Jesus aside and heading out the door to conspire to do what we want. And, and Jesus, Jesus is grieved as he sees the stony hearts, the withered hearts of these Pharisees. And he, he is grieved with that today. And we need to be grieved with him. Grieved over the sin in our own lives, but also grieved at, at the sin that we see around us. But here's the wonderful news. And, and, and what I want us to, to take from, from this passage is, is here in the assembly as we've come together and in an imperfect way opened the perfect Word of God and in an imperfect way, a flawed and faulty way, but I praise God, hopefully a faithful way superintended by His Spirit, that we've opened His Word and we go forth to serve Him faithfully. For the, the Savior who, who bid the man stick out your hand, and, and you think about that, that man holding up this, this withered remains of a hand right there in the midst of the assembly. I, I imagine I would have wanted to keep it in my pocket say, can't you heal it from here, Jesus? But humbly, in a very exposed way, before the Savior, says, I know you can make me well. And that's the message we take. That the things that trouble us, the things that separate us from God can be forgiven. The one who gave this man a new hand is with us today. The one who said, stretch out your hand, is asking us and asking the world to take that old withered heart and to give it to him. And that he can take that stony heart and make it a heart of flesh. That he can heal us. That we would not grieve him, but we would be the reason for a party of the angels in heaven. And that we can also, also see that happen around the world that many would know and stretch out their hand to Jesus. What a wonderful thing. And here in the assembly, let us rejoice. Let us rejoice that that is the message that we have the privilege of coming to and looking at each and every Sabbath, taking with us, meditating upon and living out and coming together to share the testimony that Jesus our Lord has saved us and is using us for his glory. May that be the testimony of us as we gather in the household of God, as is our custom, and as we bid others to come and to know this Jesus who heals. Pray with me. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you, Lord God, that it does, it does testify to the Savior that we see. Lord, I pray that our own sinful inclinations, the desires of our own, own sinful hearts, Lord, would not, would not distract us. And take our eyes off of you, Lord God. Father, I pray that we would live among a watching world. Father, to say that, that my usefulness is, is of nothing if the Spirit is not at work in me. That I am withered, weak, and broken. But in Jesus Christ I am healed and effective for your glory. Would you be at work through each of us, Lord God, to proclaim this loving, compassionate Savior that would be grieved at us no longer would be angry at us no longer, but would embrace us and, and love us as he bids us to go and to love others. Thank you that that is a love that will not let us go, that that is a love from which we can never be separated. 
that love of God through Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.